0: Well, if you've got your Bibles with you, we're exiting the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're entering the book of Song of Solomon, and now all your light bulbs went off, and you're like, ah, this is why Tim decided to start his vacation this week. But I think over the next two weeks as we explore this book together, this odd, sometimes off-putting book, uh, we're going to see that there's a lot of wisdom, a lot of beauty uh, to this book. Uh, and so we're going to be in Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 2 through 8. Just a little bit of context to the passage before I read it, because it can kind of be a little bit uh, weird jumping into the middle of it. Uh, this is a dream. Uh, the book is uh, love poetry between a groom and a bride, and this is the bride who's having a dream. Uh, so uh, let's come to the Song of Solomon uh, this morning. This is the word of the Lord from Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 2 through 8. I slept, but my heart was awake, a sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew and my locks with the drop of the night. I'd put off my garment. How could I put it on? I'd bathe my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. I rose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul had failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchman found me, As they went about in the city, they beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that if you find my beloved, tell him, I am sick with love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is like a lamp into our feet. It's a light into our path. So I pray by it this morning that you would challenge us, that you would change us, that you would encourage us. Would your son be our teacher this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, after a baby is born, after the time when it's crying, uh they're, they enter into this phase called quiet alert, uh, and it's when they're fresh out of the womb, they, the baby can only see about 8 to 12 inches in front of it, but what happens immediately after a baby is born uh, is they immediately start to look for a face, something they can attach to, right? They're looking for something or someone who is looking for them. Uh, And Andy Crouch wrote a book called The Life We're Looking For, and he says in that book that this is the entire point of your infant stage, right? Babies are naturally inclined to look for faces that are attuned to them, that are paying attention to them. And so from the very first moments of your life, you have always been looking for someone who was looking for you. And this continues on as kids, right? Right? you always begged your parents to come and see the greatest new game that you had dreamed up in your head or what you could do. And the reason you did that was because you longed for their approval and their encouragement, right? When you got to middle school and you realized that uh, boys and girls exist, uh, you spent so much time, right, craning for their For their attention, for them to pay attention to you, right? You might have dressed differently. You might have tried to act cooler. You probably tried to play or downplay just how much of a jerk or how much of a nerd you were uh, to impress them, right? You wanted to be noticed, right? And even now, maybe you're in a season where you're starting to look for a spouse. And inside your mind, you're desperately wanting to look for a person that makes you feel safe, that makes you feel secure, Maybe you're in your 30th marriage, right? And your husband or your wife can say what's on your mind without you ever having to open up your mouth, right? And you love that. They can finish your sentences. My point is from birth to grave, we have this desire to be fully known and fully loved, right? We want people to see us for who we are. And not only do we want people to see us for who we are, but we want them to love what they see. And I would argue whether you're religious or not, this is the cry of every human heart, especially in the post pandemic world. I can't think of anything more pertinent to our culture than this concept right here to be fully known and fully loved. Because if you ask anybody under the age of 30 what they struggle with most in life, I guarantee you that the top two answers will be loneliness and social anxiety, right? Those things are rampant in our culture. And TikTok and social media, these uh, media services have taken kind of the role as chief mediator of relationships in our world. And studies are just now coming out, research studies, they're showing just how much it's breaking human relationship. We're more connected than we ever have been in human history. And yet we're also more polarized against each other. We're also more divisive. We're also more just straight up angry and distanced from each other than ever before. And I think all of that is what brings us to the book of Song of Solomon this morning. And this book, I'll be honest from the outset, it's weird. It's weird, it's unusual to any Western reader But I think that this book, more than any other book in scripture, deals directly with what it means to be fully known and fully loved, right? When I was reading that text, or when you were reading it, maybe in your seats, you realized that this is kind of odd. This sounds like very intimate love poetry, right? There's a lot of vivid details. There's a lot of somewhat evocative subject matter that I kind of glazed over, right? It's kind of shocking that this is in the Bible, and it's absolutely one of my favorite things when a student, a high school student, gets really into reading scripture and, you know, two months go by and then they come back to me red-faced and they're like, did you know that this book is in there? Right? But as distant and as odd and as weird as this book seems at first, I don't think it takes long for us to see the wisdom behind this book. Because no matter how you interpret it, and there's been Hosts of interpretations over the course of church history. Some read it as just a simple love poetry. Some go all the way to mean that everything is symbolic. But wherever you fall on how you would interpret this book, what you see in the Song of Solomon is a story of rupture and repair. Rupture and repair. There's this couple, this couple that's deeply in love, that's moving towards marriage. And what you see are various obstacles, various longings that challenge this relationship along the way but in each moment what well, you see where there's rupture in the relationship there's also repair in the relationship the relationship is restored love is expressed between the two of them and the couple is going to grow more and more profound in and infatuation with each other over the course of the book and so this couple is living in a relationship where each of them are fully known and fully loved by the other and as we come to chapter 5, we realize that this passage is actually a dream. So it's not happening in the story of the book. It's a dream that the bride is having. But this dream that she's having is going to quickly turn into a nightmare. Right? So as the bride-to-be bride sleeps, she realizes that she's called by her husband at the door. Only to realize that when she gets to the door, he isn't there anymore. Right? This husband has left. And she doesn't know where he went. And she's going to go looking for him. She's going to go on this frantic search. And what that's going to lead to is eventual humiliation on her part. And as this story kind of weaves and it goes, what we find is that there's a lot of wisdom in this bride's dream. Because her heart, this whole passage, that her heart in this passage is like each of ours. It cries out to be known and loved. But there are barriers that she's going to have to overcome. There are barriers in the story. In her relationship, the question of this passage means, how can she embrace a life of being fully known and fully loved? And then that extends the question to us. In all of our relationships, whether it's a romantic relationship, a friendship, even our relationship with God, how can we be people who embrace this kind of life for ourselves and also love others others this way? And then maybe more important than anything else, how can we embrace God as the one who fills the deepest need of our hearts to be fully known and fully loved? So that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to look at the dream of this bride, and I want us to see what are the barriers, what are the barriers that prevent her from living this life of being fully known and fully loved, and how can that instruct us as well? So first barrier in this passage uh, is actually an internal one. Uh, It's not something that's circumstantial. It's not something that's out of her control. Uh, But it's actually something that she can take responsibility for. And it's this internal barrier of selfishness. I want you to look at the opening of this text. What's described is this moment where the bride is sleeping and the husband comes in the middle of the night. And it's described uh, that he came into the middle of the night and that there's dew and dampness on the groom, which means that it was probably really uncomfortable for him to get there. right It was either raining in the middle of the night or you know it's that early morning when it's really humid and there's damp. And the groom knocks on the door and he calls out to the bride and what happens? She turns him down, right She begins to talk to herself and uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but what does she say? Well she says, I've already gotten ready for bed. right I'm sleeping. If I come to the door and I answer the door, right, I'm going to have to do all of this getting ready over and over again, right? So the groom has inconvenienced himself and coming to visit his bride, and his bride can't even be convinced to open the door, right? It's this barrier of selfishness, right? Here's a groom who loves and adores her, and she finds it inconvenient to let him in. Right? It requires her to pay a cost. Right, It requires her to give up her beauty sleep. And if you're a husband, you know that that's a pretty big cost to pay. And as you think on that, how many relationships in your life, whether it's a friendship, whether it's a romantic relationship, how many relationships in your life can you think of moments where you've done something similar to that? Or you've had that done to you? Right, I would venture probably quite a lot. And I'm not gonna get up here and preach moral platitudes to you because I think we all know better that that's not a good thing, but our culture oftentimes reinforces the selfish nature of relationship all the time, right? Relationships in our modern day are taught to be a place of taking, not a place of giving, right? If you think about what a friend should be, a friendship in our culture should be able to provide you with something tangible, Your friendship should be able to give you social credibility. At least your friendship should be able to give you a fun time. And if they don't, if at ever a point your friends become a drain on you and all you feel like you're doing is giving, 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 then what does culture say? Don't waste your time. Just snip it. Get rid of them. Right? Marriages. Right? Marriages in our culture ought to please you all the time. You also should Always be happy, and if ever you don't, if ever you're not happy in your marriage anymore, right? We have an out for that. There's divorce, and you can go find happiness elsewhere, right? Culture teaches us that business relationships, business relationships always need to be set up in a way where you are never found lesser on the totem pole than someone else, right? It's that strategic uh, moving around to make sure that you always come out on top, and even our own relationship with the God of Creation falls victim to this kind of thinking, right? God in our minds, we don't want to say it, but I think we we act this way sometimes. God exists to give, give, give to us, and we just get to take, take, take from God, right? Notice what gets this girl out of bed to go open up to her groom, right? The promise of something more intimate for her, right? What's in it for her? And so she immediately is at the door at that point, right? We often live like this. See, our relationships across the map, we have to be careful to make sure that we don't see them just as important as what we get out of them, right? Where if they ever become a place where we're just giving and we don't get to take anything, then we see them as useless. But the wisdom of scripture reminds us that this way of thinking prohibits us from ever being truly known and truly loved. Because if you ever want to experience that type of relationship, one where somebody knows you fully and deeply and loves you anyway, you also have to be one that loves and knows others, right? Being known and loved isn't something that you get only. It's rather a life you live and you do it for others. I'll never forget when I was in college uh, we had a group of guys in our fraternity who really felt like they were on the outskirts of the fraternity. They felt like they didn't really have any friends. They hadn't connected with anybody. Uh, and what they really wanted was community. And so there were a handful of us caring about them, wanting to listen to them. We would go sit with them. We would listen to them, and we would empathize with them. And this went on for about a year, and nothing really changed. They always felt like they were on the outskirts. They always felt like they didn't have any friends, and some of us started getting a little bit frustrated And finally, someone challenged him one day, and it was hard to hear. But what he said was, you know, we invite you every week to small group, and you never came. In fact, you haven't been to a fraternity social in six months. See, maybe the first step to the community you're longing for isn't that we all move towards you. But maybe it's time for you to take a step towards us. And that was hard to hear. But it's true, right? See, selfishness over time, it created this comfort. And what what it did was it got in the way of relationship. Tell you a contrary story to that. When I first moved here to Thomasville and got to this church, there were two people in this church, particularly, who every time I saw them, and I mean every time I saw them, I'd see them multiple times a week, would introduce themselves by name to me. We're talking for probably the first year I was here. Every time I saw them, they are like, hey, I'm, hey, I'm, to the point where in the back of my mind, I thought I had called them the wrong name at some point, And they were just like trying to remind me like, this is my actual name. But it wasn't that, right? What was it? It was this deep, longing desire to be known by name. And they didn't expect me to immediately learn their name. Even though by the fifth time I had it, I remembered it, they still kept doing it. And I could never forget it. And it was this beautiful thing where it wasn't assuming that I would come to them, even though I was trying to. It was the sweetest step in my direction. I want to be known and loved, right? In your marriages and your families today, where are the one-way roads that you would set, right? With your friend group, how often are you the one who takes the initiative? And are there ever moments where you inconvenience yourself for them? You don't get to take, but you just give. Maybe a more challenging one. In your relationship with God, when was the last time that you gave him just a little bit more than a cursory check in the offering plate on a Sunday? It was transformative for me. To think of worship on Sundays, not simply as what I can get out of the message, what I can get out of worship, but simply seeing it as God delights in me bringing my worship to him. God delights that I've given up my time to be here on a Sunday morning. Right, so selfishness is this internal barrier that will always prevent us from being known and loved. Because why? Because you get to set terms. You get to say what you do and you don't do, and that will always get in the way of something more deep and more fulfilling. And rather what scripture says is it's both together, sacrificing for the good of each other, that that's what creates the seedbed for deeper relationships. So the first barrier is uh, selfishness, but the second barrier, uh, this external barrier, something that could be more circumstantial, something that's outside of your control, is this fear of vulnerability. This fear of vulnerability. And uh, many of you have heard my story, uh, my own personal faith story, but uh, if you haven't heard it, uh, kind of the pivotal moment in my life is that when I was in middle school, uh, I was bullied uh, verbally. I was never Uh, physically bullied, but I was verbally bullied by two guys in particular. And uh, those two guys were basically in every moment of my life. So they went to our same church. They were in our same student ministry. They were in my school. So I never really could get away from them. Uh, And basically what it entailed was I got called names that I would never repeat up here. Uh, Everything I enjoyed, they just loved to mock uh, because it was funny to them. It was a joke. And uh, in return, What I ended up doing was I would just come up with elaborate stories to try to make myself seem cooler uh, and try to fit in. And they would see right through that. And what did it do? It just kind of spiraled the cycle even more. And so if you're asking me what I was looking for when I was in middle school and high school, I didn't have the words to say to the point, but this is what I was looking for, to be fully known and loved. But what I found was every time that I sought community from these people, tried to fit in with these people, what I was getting was rejection. And that's no different than what this woman experiences as she seeks to find a dream, right? She comes up to the door. She realizes he's not there. And what does she do now? She goes looking for him. She goes out into the town and she's looking and uh, what you realize is that she's, obviously dressed in her pajamas at this point as she's looking through town, and uh, the watchmen in the town see her. They obviously see her in her pajamas, and they assume that she's probably something else, a little bit more illegal, uh, and they begin to beat her. They begin to beat her, and so what happens is her simple desire to be with her groom, her simple desire actually ends up exposing her to the rest of the town, and severe rejection follows, and I would venture that if you ask anyone what their greatest fear is, I I would say, unless it's heights or spiders or something like that, I would say that people's greatest fear is this idea that you can be fully known by someone and yet not loved by them. Right? That someone else might see all the dirtiness, the mistakes, the thoughts that run in your head, and what they want to do is they want to distance themselves from you. Or maybe even worse. Maybe they want to turn it on you, right? Your greatest fear is that you end up like the bride in this nightmare, right? Rejected, woefully misunderstood. And I think that's important. As we think about being a church that loves our neighborhood, loves our culture, that this is what people in our culture deal with all of the time, right? We put up all of these walls, to protect ourselves, and we stay away from vulnerability because to let our guard down at any point might lead to the fact that we might be exposed and rejected, right? That's why imposter syndrome exists in work and in parenting, right? Because you don't want to be figured out for the fraud that you think you are, right? It's why social media has become such a force in our world because it allows you behind the safety of a screen, right, to build the image of yourself that you want to show, Right? our fear of vulnerability puts us at this place where we make a trade. We're okay with being less known if that means there's less of us to reject, right? less of us to get hurt, maybe less expectation on us, less that we have to take responsibility for. And yet what the human heart cries out for, what it cries out for is for someone to look at you and deem you valuable for someone to look at you and say, you know what, you're worth it, right? That's why when you have your first boyfriend or girlfriend in life, it's an incredible feeling to be wanted by someone. That's why when you get your first big job promotion and someone looks at you, looks at your work and says, you know what, you deserve more than the job you're working. It feels so good, right? That's why when your grandkids want you around 24 seven, it feels so good, right? Because we want to be wanted, Right? Right? We want to be wanted. We want to be loved. We want to be validated for what we're doing. But we are, on the other side, terrified that if we expose any of ourselves, that that could all be thrown away. Right? So how do we overcome that? Well, in our own power, we don't. Right? That's what our culture is figuring out right now, is that you can't overcome this by yourself. But We have hope because we can look to another. Because if we believe that we have to build our walls, we have to stay dressed up, we have to stay buttoned up in order to be received and accepted by the people of God, by God himself, right? We forget a certain other someone who was severely beaten and dragged, sorely misunderstood, who was looking for us. Right, the one who pursued us, Christ who pursued us, was not exalted on the road to the cross, right? I love the way that the old confession spoke. He was humiliated for us. Right? What did Jesus do when he came looking for us? Right? He threw aside every pretense of control. And he became completely vulnerable. And why? Because he wanted to fully know and love you. Right? Jesus threw aside all sense of dignity and lordship. He came down from his throne and took the form of a servant, and he was beaten as he wandered the road to the cross where he'd ultimately find you. Right? He was humiliated because he wanted to find you. He was vulnerable for you. And so to be fully known and fully loved, I think what many people want it to be is this very easy thing. right? We want it to be plug and play. We want to be risk-free in our relationships. We want to have relationships where we don't incur any loss or pain. Yet love in its truest sense, love in its biblical sense, doesn't work like that. C.S. Lewis writes this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure that you keep it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or the coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. No. It will become unbreakable impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And so to experience a life that God intended, we do have to go searching. We do have to look to the cross, but then we also have to allow ourselves, as the people of God, to be vulnerable with each other. Because that's the only way we can be fully known and fully loved. But when we do so, friends, the reward is far greater because this is what our hearts cry out for real quickly the last barrier is this longing barrier and as we come to the table in just a few minutes i think that this meal uh, represents that last barrier to being fully known and fully loved and You'll notice when the bride is finished being beat by the watchman of the town, she adjures the daughters of Jerusalem. And oftentimes she'll adjure the daughters of Jerusalem throughout the book, and that's usually a time to zoom in of what she's about to say. And what she tells them, and she says, If you see my beloved, if you see him, tell him I am sick with love. Meaning what? Meaning in this pain that I feel right now, this love that I'm pursuing is worth it. And you know what? I'm hungry for it. I'm sick for it. I want it more. I'm unwilling to settle. I'm unwilling to resign myself to less. See, part of why we get up here every Sunday and we preach, preach the word each and every week, is not so that you have a checklist of do's and don'ts, things to go home and say, okay, I got to do this, and I don't want to do this. The reason we preach the word is to create a hunger in you. It is to create a sickness in you right a longing in you to create a holy discontent for the way things are right now in your life that the way things are right now that isn't enough for me and that I want more right I want more of Jesus I want more of his love I want to be fully known by God with all of my mistakes and regrets and I don't want to be turned away but I want to be invited into a family and whether you are nine or 90, that is always the call, to long for more of what God has and to not settle or resign yourself to less, right? I don't know where each of you are with the Lord right now, but one thing that always seems to be true, regardless of where you are, is that you're never uh, satisfied with where you're at right now, that there's always something more that you want, right? You want more from him, You want deeper relationship with him. You want to be freer. You want to be more joyful. And as we come to this table, that's the invitation, right? That God knew every misstep. God knew every failing that you would have. God knew every vulgar thought. God knew every blind ambition. And he was stripped, beaten, and he died so you might be brought to the very throne room of God and crowned as his beloved child, right? God fully knew you and he fully loved you. And this bread and cup are a sign of that. And so as we come to the table, let's reflect on that. The fact that God fully knew us and he also fully loves us and he invites us to come. And then as we come, part of what we do is we, we proclaim the Lord's saving death until he comes again, as we say at the end of the words of institution, is that we go up, love others like this. That this is what characterizes the people of God, as people who are willing to be vulnerable, but also we want to know other people. And we don't turn away from sin. I'll close with this. When I was in Orlando, we had a fellows program that uh, – kind of uh, had a bunch of college grads who would come in for a gap year. And one of the things is they would make a promise to each other. And the one line of that promise I always loved is we will not be surprised by each other's sin. What a rich promise to make to each other. That we will get to know you very well because we're all gonna be together all the time, but we're not gonna turn away. You are gonna be fully known and fully loved. It's the promise that God makes to you by this table. And that's the promise that we can make to the world as we love uh, with the love of Christ.